Well, all right, here we go. You ready? We're going to leave Romans 9. This is last week on Romans 9. I know some of you are like so ready to leave Romans 9, get into Romans 10. Believe me, I share your pain. I share your pain. Uh, talking about Jerry praying for me in our classes we teach here. Uh, boy, I, I just, I, I needed your prayers this past week. Uh, this is probably, well, this is one of the most difficult chapters in all the Bible. And now we're going to tackle one of the most difficult topics in all the Bible. Probably no uh, topic that uh, is so, has caused so much um, disagreement, so much um, emotional angst, uh, so much uh, confusion, and, and just a lot of, you know, craziness. And you say, well, then why would we want to address it? Because of that. Because of that. Uh, and because the Word of God. Uh, is greater than our fears and our anxieties, and so we're going to tackle this. Well, let's look at how do we maintain the mystery in Romans 9? That's what we've been looking at for the last two weeks, and we'll look at today. How do you maintain the mystery in Romans 9? Here's the answer. I want you to write it out again, same as last week, same as the week before. Keep a biblical balance. You've got to keep a biblical balance. You must keep the biblical balance. If you fall off on one side and overemphasize human responsibility in Romans 9, you eliminate the mystery. If you fall off the tightrope on the other side and overemphasize divine sovereignty, you lose the mystery. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty, it's like the counterbalance that you use to walk on a tightrope. And if you overemphasize one, to the neglect of the other, you're going to lose the mystery. Now, notice it says, don't overemphasize human responsibility to the extent we eliminate divine sovereignty. On the other side, don't overemphasize divine sovereignty to the extent you eliminate human responsibility. What do I believe is the biblical balance, not only in Romans 9, but in all the Bible on these two issues? Look below. It says, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not equals. Because the Bible clearly exalts God's sovereignty over human responsibility, but does so in a way that does not eliminate human responsibility. Now, I, I ran across this, this tension, this tension of walking the tightrope concerning the doctrine of election is a long, it, 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 it's an ancient argument. It's an ancient tension. And this is illustrated, I thought, kind of humorously in a poem which appeared in the Continental Journal, March 11th, 1779. So as old as our country is, this is, you know, it, it, we've been discussing it. So here's a poem. And the poem appeared in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Continental Journal with this title, On Predestination. And here's how it goes. If all things succeed, as already agreed, and immutable impulses rule us, to preach and to pray is but time thrown away, and our teachers do nothing but fool us. If we're driven by fate, either this way or that, as the carriage driver whips up his horses, then no man can stray and all go the right way as the stars that are fixed in their courses. But if by free will we can go or stand still as best suits the present occasion, then fill up the glass and confirm him an ass that depends upon predestination. Okay, so there's somebody that's saying, hey, if you if you're emphasizing God's sovereignty too much, you're a well backside of a donkey. Okay, 
Well, since there are two sides to this, what do you think happened two weeks later? Two weeks later, an answer appeared in the same newspaper, and here's how it goes. If an all-perfect mind rules over mankind with infinite wisdom and power, sure he may decree, and yet the will be free, the deeds and events of each hour. If Scripture affirms in the plainest of terms the doctrine of predestination, we ought to believe it and humbly receive it as a truth of divine revelation. If all things advance with the force of mere chance or by human free will are directed to preach and to pray will be time thrown away, our teachers may well be rejected. If men are depraved and to vice so enslaved that the heart chooses nothing but evil, then who goes on still by his own corrupt will is driving post haste to the devil. Then let human pride and vain carping subside. It is plain to a full demonstration that he's a wild ass who over his glass dares ridicule predestination. Right now, I don't know, maybe my humor's twisted, but I found that I found that funny. In the sense that here's these people battling this out. That's the tension. That's the tightrope. Now, we've been looking at three suggestions on how to maintain our balance. Number one, we, we saw two weeks ago, allow Paul to focus on what the Holy Spirit led him to write. In other words, it's there. Don't take away from what God has said and don't add to what God has said. Let it stand. It is God's word. There's more we can say on that, but let's move on. Last week, and we really emphasized number two, do not eliminate divine sovereignty in the unconditional election of individuals to salvation from chapter 9. We really said, look, you're going to fall off this tightrope if you try to eliminate divine sovereignty. This week, I have a third suggestion, and here it is. Do not eliminate human responsibility. Do not eliminate human responsibility by going to the extreme of double predestination. So on one side, if you try to eliminate unconditional election, you're going to eliminate God's sovereignty. On the other side, if you see double predestination in this passage, you're going to eliminate human responsibility. You say, now, what in the world is double predestination and why should I care? Well, I hope to show you that in this lesson. Notice in your notes, extreme double predestination claims this. And there's basically three claims I'm going to show you. This is what they this is what they claim. God not only chose who would be saved, but also who would be damned before they were created without and there's the key word, without any reference to them being sinners by birth or by choice. So it's like the universe is a you know it's just a, well there's nothing there's nothing but God and God says you know what I'm going to create some people to be saved and I'm going to create some people to be uh, forever sinners and 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 that's what I'm going to start with that with that thinking without any reference to them being sinners now where would they get this from Romans chapter nine let me you, you tell me where do you think they would get that kind of a stark type of uh, view of God. Well, look at 9.13. 9.13. In fact, we can look at 10 through 13, because this is really where they would see, they think it's being taught. Look at 9.10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived, when she had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And then verse 13, as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's what they would They would take that verse 13 to mean that God is choosing both to save and judge without any reference to the reality of the fall, without any reference to human rebellion. In other words, they would argue that God's judgment of sinners is as unconditional as his salvation. We've been arguing from Romans 9 and seeing in Romans 9 that God unconditionally chooses some to be saved. And they'd say, exactly. Now, it's double that, double it. And God unconditionally chooses some to become sinners without reference to their choices. God, this is called double predestination, and in its, its most extreme teaching, here's what it says. God chooses to actively and unconditionally create some people for eternal damnation with no reference at all to their future sin or rejection of Christ. Now, just saying that should, should make you, you know, push back. Just saying that, that... that That doesn't coincide with the character of God that we see in the scriptures. There's something slightly askew in that. What is wrong with that? Well, as we go on, let me say again, just as God unconditionally chose to save some sinners before the world was ever created, he unconditionally chose to create some people simply to damn them for all of eternity. This is why many have called this a horrible decree. It likens God uh, to a... Just in in a, in a in a in a way that we can't even comprehend. Just so that we're sure we're presenting their view fairly. Here's uh, notice in your notes. Here's a, 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 a one scholar's definition. The distortion of double predestination looks like this. And here's the key word. There's a symmetry. Circle that word. There's a symmetry. Perfect balance. Perfect equality between election. In reprobation, God choosing some to be saved, God choosing to damn others. That's what that means. God works in the same way, circle same way, in the same manner, circle same manner, with all respect to the elect and to the reprobate, those who are hardened in their sin. So God's equal, it's double. That is to say, from all eternity, God decreed some to election and by divine initiative works faith in their hearts and brings them actively to salvation. That we have seen in Romans 9. But notice the next phrase, by the same token, in the same way, from all eternity, God decrees some to sin and damnation and actively intervenes. I'd circle actively intervenes to work sin in their lives, bringing them to damnation by divine initiative. God works sin in their lives. Stated another way, we can establish a parallelism. Circle that of predestination by means of a positive symmetry. There's the word again. We can call this a positive, positive view of present uh, predestination. Now, I don't see anything positive about it, but you know what he's saying. God is actively, positively doing both saving and damning. This is God positively and actively intervenes in the lives of the elect to bring them to salvation in the same way God positively and actively intervenes in the life of the reprobate to bring him to sin. Now, say, okay, that was a little heavy there. My head's hurting. Well, let, let me simplify. Look at the next two statements in your notes. Here's basically what's being said about double predestination. God was as active. 
God was as active and directly involved in people becoming sinners and being damned as he was active and directly involved in sinners becoming saints and being saved. He was active in both. Third observation about double predestination. God not only unconditionally chose to save some for himself, but he also unconditionally chose to damn others in the same way. It's both unconditional. It's both unconditional. So look at the words you you, you filled out there. Double predestination looks at God choosing who would be damned without any reference to them being sinners. He's just sovereignly doing it. He's actively involved in people becoming sinners, and he unconditionally chose some to be damned with no real reference to their future sin. Now, Romans 9.13, if you, if you read Romans 9, it can leave you with this impression. But is that what Romans 9 is really teaching? Has double predestination fallen off the tightrope and eliminated human responsibility? I would say it has. And so let me give you the reasons. Extreme double predestination falls off the tightrope of the text, and here's why. Here's why. God is sovereign over salvation and judgment. Listen, you've got to acknowledge that. In the beginning, God. Okay, God is sovereign. That's why he judges. That's why people, if if you say God's not sovereign in judgment, then God's not sovereign at all. Okay, so he's sovereign in salvation and judgment. But here's the key. The Bible is careful to reveal that God's sovereignty over salvation is different. It's different from his sovereignty over judgment. So he's sovereign over both, but he's sovereign over one in a way, in a different way than he's sovereign over the other. And that's the crucial distinction. So let me break that down a little bit. What's the difference, Chris? What is the difference? Well, here's the difference. Number one, God unconditionally chooses to actively show mercy. God unconditionally chooses to actively show mercy to some who are undeserving of it. They are undeserving of it because they are sinners. This is what's called sovereign grace. This is sovereign mercy. You don't deserve it, but I freely choose to show it to you. It's unconditional. You you, you don't do anything to deserve it. You don't do anything to earn it. And I actively bestow my mercy upon you. Before the creation of the world, Paul teaches in both Romans and Ephesians, before the creation of the world, God foresees people as sinners and unconditionally chose some to be saved, not based on their birth, not based on their beliefs, not based on their behavior, but based on the kind intention and unconditional love of his holy character, which led them to be called through the gospel, which led them to be justified by faith in Christ, which led them to be ultimately glorified. Your salvation is secure. It's all because of God's unconditional active choice. Number two, but in a different way, God conditionally, not unconditionally, conditionally chooses to passively, not actively, passively, pass over and condemn some who are deserving sinners. This is sovereign justice and sovereign wrath. Because here's the bottom line. If I choose some 
by the very nature of choosing one person and not choosing the other, I am making a choice that impacts both. But by actively choosing this one who doesn't deserve, both are sinful, both are undeserving, both deserve to go to hell, but I actively choose one, I am passively not choosing that one, but they are getting what they justly deserve, and this one is getting what? Mercy, grace, and if they deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy, and if they didn't deserve the wrath, it wouldn't be just. Third, or let me let me say before the so. Third, let me just move on. Move on. Number three, God sees both as undeserving sinners. God sees both in His, and I don't know how this works. I don't know fully how to explain this. I don't know how. This is a mystery, but God sees both or at least presents both in Scripture as undeserving sinners. But he only actively, unconditionally chooses some to be saved while justly leaving the rest to suffer the consequences of their sinful nature and their sinful choices. Is that taught in Romans 9? Let me show you the difference in Romans 9. So let's take a look. First of all, Jacob and Esau. Here's the, this is the tough nut to crack. I don't pretend to understand it all, but here's the thing. Just because something's hard doesn't mean it's impossible. These are hard things to understand. That doesn't mean, oh, I give up. Although some of us treat life that way. Anything hard, I'm running this way. You know, and and if that's the way you approach life, that's the way you're going to approach scripture. Just because this is hard doesn't mean impossible. But just because I tackle it doesn't mean I've conquered it. Okay. I am in the process of tackling it. You need to be in that process. Thanks for hanging with me. So let's take a look at Jacob and Esau 10 through 13. I just read it. Now, here's what I I want to make some observations. Jot down. You don't agree. Great. But understand why you don't agree and show it from Scripture. Notice that while Paul emphasizes that God chooses one over the other, Jacob over Esau, and it was before they were born, he does not say he did this before they were created or before they were sinners. Notice, he says that. He says, when Rebekah had conceived, but before they were born. Now, when they were conceived, what were they conceived in? Sin. Everyone is born, is conceived. Let me, everyone is conceived a sinner. But before they were born, that is before you could say, oh, he's pretty and he's ugly. All babies are ugly, except your baby. Your baby's beautiful. I understand that. But, you know, before they came out and they said, oh, he's pretty and he's not. That one's hairy. Remember, Esau was the hairy one. That one's the, you know, before there was any preferences, they couldn't see him. They're in the womb. They didn't have, what do you call that today? Sonogram. No sonogram back then. Okay, so they're conceived. They're in there. They're sinners, but they haven't done anything, good or bad. And there's nothing to to appeal to God. Notice, he does not say that God did this before they were created or were sinners, just before they were born and had done anything good or bad. The point is this, neither were worthy or deserving of God's mercy and grace. They were both conceived as sinners. Exercising his sovereign free will, God chose one and rejected the other. Actively chose one, passively rejected the other. Now, here's the point. If they both deserve to be chosen, if both of these boys deserve to be chosen and only one was chosen, then God would have been what? Unjust. But if they both deserve to be judged, and they did, just as all of us when we were conceived in sin, 
if they were deserved to be judged for their sin and God chose to unconditionally show mercy to one and not the other, that is not unjust. It is merciful. It is gracious. Are you with me? All right. There you go. Jacob and Esau. Actively towards one, passively towards the other. Both are undeserving and viewed that way by God. Okay, what about Moses and Pharaoh? Move or, move on to the next example, Moses and Pharaoh. This is in verses 14 through 18, so let's read it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice, because, injustice on God's part? You see, what I just present to you, though I think it's clearly there in the text, the human, our human flesh says, wait a minute, that's not fair. But that's because we don't understand how sinful people are and how gracious God is. So he says this, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up. Why? That I may show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Again, I want you to take note. Moses, Pharaoh, these are men who have been born. They've been born sinners. They are sinners. Both, neither one deserves anything but eternal judgment from God. But notice what Moses does. The reference that uh, the, the Old Testament passage that Paul is referencing, Moses is asking for mercy for sinful Israel. God's commandments are coming down, and as he's revealing the Ten Commandments, what is Israel doing? Yeah, and God's about to... Judge them. And he says, don't, God, don't judge them. Don't start over with me. Don't do this. I'm asking for mercy. And, uh, and by the way, while you're showing them mercy, I want to see your glory. I want to see your holy name. Reveal to me your glory. God chooses in his grace, in his sovereignty, to forgive rebellious Israel and show Moses the backside of his glorious name. The reason he shows him his backside, because he says, Moses, if I show you my glory full on, You'd be toast. That's just how undeserving you are. That's how, uh, that's how unrighteous you are. That's how human you are and how divine I am. But I'm going to show it to you. A character that, and then in, in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, here's what he shows him. He says, Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name. And here's my character, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom. This is my character. My character is to show mercy, but it's to do it according to my sovereign choice, not the demands of sinners. And then he goes on to Exodus 34, and here, it's, here, here he's passed by, and he says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now, here's his name. Here's his glory. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, and there's the kicker, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation what he's saying is man i have abundant mercy but i also have sovereign wrath that's who i am that's who i am 
And so I do what I do because that's who I am. That's who I am. Now, let me emphasize back to Romans 9. Pharaoh is a sinner who has chosen to sin and even admits in the midst of his sin that he's a sinner and God is righteous. Now, turn your Bibles to Exodus. We're going to take a quick uh, survey of God's hardening because here's the here's the issue. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh first harden his own heart? Now, I, 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 I'm not going to take you in depth through this. And uh, you, you jot down observations. You go back and look at it. In fact, I think I gave you weeks ago, I gave you a chart of all this, all, all this laid out. Because I am amazed as I read commentaries, as I read scholars discuss this issue of who hardened Pharaoh's heart. So many of them offer this scenario of the evidence. And here's what they say. God only hardened Pharaoh's heart after he hardened his own heart. God only hardened Pharaoh's heart after his own heart. Now, see, we like that. That seems just. That seems fair. The only problem is the text will not support that. Exodus 4 through Exodus 15, that's the relevant material, the ten plagues. It just does not support that. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now, that's the evidence. Now, you, now, where's the justice in that? Is because God didn't harden his heart so that he would become a sinner. He hardened his heart so he would continue to sin in the way that he had already chosen. And let me show you that. First of all, in Exodus 1. I won't read Exodus 1, but Exodus 1, Pharaoh's a sinner. He's got God's people as slaves, and he says, I'm going to make it tough on them. I'm going to afflict them. In fact, they are becoming so numerous... We're going to practice infanticide. You know what infanticide is? It's the killing of infants. And every son that is born, I want you to kill him. Now, do you think Pharaoh's a sinner? Do you think he's a pretty hard sinner? Yeah. Yeah, he's a sinner in Exodus 1. So then you come to Exodus 4.21. You can look at that. Exodus 4.21. And God says, look, Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to harden him in what he has freely chosen, what he has continued in. Now I'm going to harden him in it. He sovereignly chooses to harden Pharaoh in his sin in order to show his mercy to sinful Israel against the backdrop of his long-suffering wrath against sinful Egypt. In other words, in Exodus 1, as soon as Pharaoh did this, God could have judged him and thrown him into eternal damnation and justly done it. And he said, no, I'm going to be long-suffering. I'm going to put up with this sinful guy. In fact, I'm going to harden him in what he is choosing, that he will continue to do that, and I'm going to get greater glory from it. I'm going to set my chosen people, Israel, free by it. And throughout the nations of the world at that time, they will know that I am the Lord, who shows mercy, but also judges iniquity. I am greater than Pharaoh, who thinks he is a god walking on the earth. So that's what happens in 421. Notice I'll even uh, read it for you in 421. Get in the right chapter. 421. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart. Now, this is the first mention of it in Exodus, of the word harden. 
I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. So he already goes to the tenth plague. This is, all, this is a done deal. God has sovereignly determined it, but he's determined it for one who is a, ju- who, who is a deserving sinner. Then you go to uh, Exodus 5. Go to Exodus 5, 1 and 2. Pharaoh, here's his first chance to exercise his will, to make his free choice, to, to, to be a responsible Pharaoh and a responsible human being. Pharaoh chooses to sin by refusing to let God's people go, and he mocks God in a way that clearly shows he's a rebel and an unbeliever. But the king of Egypt, verse 4, said to Moses, said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take this people from their work? Get back to your burdens. I'm sorry, I read the wrong verse. Verse 2, but Pharaoh said, verse 2, who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Whoa. Whoa. All right. Then, Exodus 7. Move forward. 7, 8, 9. I'm not going to take the time to read these verses. But in 7 and 8, God, now it says, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And yet, Pharaoh, it also says in these verses, and you can look him later, Pharaoh hardens his heart, but he only hardens his heart, it says in the text, three times. The overwhelming point, and even when he hardens his own heart, it says Pharaoh hardens his heart actively. It says, as the Lord said. As the Lord said. And then you come to Exodus 9. Now, let's look at Exodus 9. This is after the, this is after the seventh plague. So, there's ten plagues. Seventh plague. Seven is a number of of kind of a a divine perfection culmination. After the seventh plague, I want you to look at verses 27 and 28. In the midst of all this, all of God's sovereign working, here's what he says. Verse 27, we must go three days, Moses is speaking, we must go three days into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, "I I will let you go. Oh, what am I doing? I mean, I, I'm, I'm like one chapter behind today. I'm sorry. 927. 927. This is what you get for using a new Bible. 927. Then Pharaoh sent and he called Moses and Aaron and said to them. Okay, so seventh plague, 927. This time, this time, what does he say? I have sinned. I. He's not saying God's causing me. I have sinned. And then notice what he says. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. So here is this this sinner, this human being, who's saying, look, God's hardening him, God's working, he's hardening. But in the midst of it, he says, look, God's right, I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. God's righteous. God's not doing anything wrong in this. Now, here's the point, and you have it in your notes. You know, there's more we can delve into that, but here's the point. God does not harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would become a sinner against his own willful choices. He doesn't do that. He doesn't harden him so that he becomes a sinner. God does harden Pharaoh's heart so he would continue to be a sinner in keeping with his willful choices. I'm a sinner, and I'm going to continue to sin. 
And even when I say I want to make it right, every time he falls back and says, no, I'm not going to let him go. God does harden Pharaoh's heart so he would continue to be a sinner in keeping with his willful choices. Why? In order to proclaim the fame of his name and save his chosen people. God is the one who initially hardens Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh's heart was already sinful. Okay, back to Romans 9. There's a difference in how God works in judgment and salvation. Let's look at Romans 9, 19 through 21. Now, here's, a, here's another area. Here's another portion of Romans 9 that could lead some to believe in double predestination. As though God is so sovereign, human responsibility is eliminated. Let's look at it. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does, get, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? So look at that wording, the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Now, here's my observation on this. The idea is not that God is in eternity past, creates some people to be saved and some to be damned. That's not what's going on here but rather out of the same clump of fallen clay. It's the same, the same thing. It's already been created. It's a lump of clay that is fallen. It's fallen humanity. They all deserve to be judged. They all deserve, all of us do, to go to hell. And we're in the same. So every one of us is made up of that same clump. Make sense? Okay. So he's not creating out of nothing. Sinners, saints. You're going to be saved. You're not going to be saved with no, no. He's working with fallen humanity, all of which deserve nothing from a holy God, but his wrath. And yet in his mercy, God chooses to save some. Now, here's, here's, here's the point. God, Romans 9 does not teach, nor does the Bible ever reveal God in eternity past, creating some people to be damned without any reference to them being sinners by nature or by choice. I keep saying that. God determined to create the world in eternity past. He determined to permit the fall or it never would have happened. He permitted that fall. And yet Adam and Eve were free to choose. They did have free will. They did have a free choice to do, to obey God or to disobey. What did they choose? And when they chose, they chose for us too. You say, that's not fair. Hey, that happens all the time. That's representation. That's just a part of being born into humanity. When they chose, we chose with them. And they chose to disobey. God then determined to provide Christ as a sacrifice for sin that is sufficient for all people. He did that in eternity past. And he determined to unconditionally and graciously save some who are undeserving and to sovereignly pass over others who are equally deserving of wrath. He calls those he foreknew to be saved by faith alone in Christ alone, to be eternally secure in that salvation to the day of glory. That same lump is us, deserving sinners, by our own choice, by our own nature. Final piece of evidence is the vessels of mercy and the vessels of wrath. The vessels of mercy and the vessels of wrath. We've moved on to Romans 9, 22 through 24. Romans 9, 22 through 24. Notice what he says. What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience 
vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. There's the key phrase, prepared for destruction. Why did he do this? Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Now look at the difference, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. There's a difference between the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy. There's a difference in how they have been prepared. And it's right there in the text. So let's break it down. Let me say again, the clay from which the vessels are formed is viewed in chapter 9 as already sinful, already rebellious. Vessels of wrath, what's that mean? They're seen by God as willful sinners who deserve to be judged, and in His mysterious purpose, He chooses to pass over them in judgment. Vessels of mercy means God. They're seen by God as willful sinners who deserve to be judged, just like the vessels of wrath. But in the riches of His glorious mercy, He's going to show them mercy and predestine them salvation. Now, see the subtle difference. Look at verse 22. Look at the subtle difference. In verse 22, prepared for destruction is passive and there's no subject. They didn't, did you, do you see that? It's passive. They were prepared. Well, who prepared them? Well, ultimately, God's sovereignty, but specifically, who's mentioned? Nobody. It's passive and there's no active person shown. But look at the very next verse. The very next verse, in order to make known his riches of the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. What's he say about them, which he has prepared beforehand. Notice three differences. One, who's doing the preparing in the second case? God, and he specifically mentioned also the word prepared is an active verb, not a passive verb. Secondly, the word prepared beforehand is actually one word in the Greek. It's not the same word as prepared in the other word, in the other verse. So it's even two different words. One just means prepared. And in the second verse, it's one Greek word and it means prepared beforehand. So the emphasis is in eternity past for the mercy, but that's not the emphasis for the sin. There's differences here. There's subtle You say, well, that's just one passage. Go to Matthew 25. Jesus also makes these subtle differences. Look at Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is the famous uh, story of the sheep and the goat judgment, right? So the sheep, you know, are on the right. The the goats are on the left. He's making a difference. Now, listen, this is a future judgment by Jesus himself. Listen to Jesus' wording. Look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, those who are being shown mercy, those who are the saved, Come, you who are blessed by who? By my Father, very directly, by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's been prepared for you before creation, from the foundation, and my Father has done it. Very clear, very active, very direct, very personal. Drop down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire 
prepared. Notice it doesn't say directly by the Father. Doesn't say directly, doesn't directly link him. And it was prepared for who? For the devil and his angels. Do you see there's this? Now, is God sovereign over all that? Did God, did God prepare heaven and hell? Is God sovereign over? Yeah, he's over all of it. But he's directly involved in the showing mercy to the saved. And there's a passive distance in giving those who are cursed that which they deserve. Let me give you one last piece of evidence in terms of this. Have you ever wondered why there's not a book of death, but there's a book of life? You see, it's the same type of difference. There's a book of life. But if God from all eternity was doing double predestination, there'd be a book of life and a book of death, and the names are set in each. But there's a book of life because God's about life. And he is sovereign over life. So the vessels of wrath are worthy of judgment, are passively prepared for destruction. Let me look at verse 22, Romans 9, 22. Is God ultimately sovereign over their judgment? Yes. But is he actively, directly involved in it? No, the verb is passive, and God is not directly mentioned. It's their own nature, their own sin, that destines them for wrath. But look on the other hand. The vessels of mercy that are equally worthy and deserving of judgment are actively prepared beforehand, right in there, beforehand, by God himself for a glorious salvation. Is God ultimately sovereign over salvation? Yes. But is he actively, directly involved in their being prepared, prepared for glory? The answer now is yes. Before it was no, now it's yes. God's directly mentioned as actively preparing them. Now, listen to what I'm, listen to what I'm saying. Their own sin nature, these vessels of mercy, their own sin nature, their own sinful choices have made them ready for judgment that they and all of us deserve. And then I'm going to say two words, but God, but God, in his mercy, based on his grace alone, has chosen to unconditionally prepare them for a glorious salvation they do not deserve. Read Ephesians chapter 2, but God, who is rich in mercy, raised from the dead those who by nature were children of wrath. Look at Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's why they're called vessels of mercy. They receive what they don't deserve. Here's how one man summed this up. This means that while there is grace to some, there is no injustice. There is no injustice to anyone. And then another man observed this. While God finds pleasure in the salvation of the elect, he has sworn by himself that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't delight. He delights in salvation. He does not delight having to judge, but he does because that's who he is. That's what he does. So here's the final point. Romans 9 does not teach, in my opinion, my understanding of this passage, double predestination, unconditional election to salvation and damnation. But it does teach single predestination to salvation. It does teach single predestination to salvation. And just so you know, I'm not just sitting in my office coming up with these crazy ideas. Bruce Demarest from his book, and I highly recommend this book, highly recommend this book. If you want to understand, it's just, I can't go on. It's a great book. 
Here's what he here's how he defines single predestination. The weight of biblical and historical evidence rests in favor of a single unconditional election to life. This position holds that out of the mass of fallen and responsible humanity, for reasons known to himself, God in grace chose some to be saved and to permit the others to to persist in their sin. The biblical evidence leads us to posit an asymmetrical, it's not equal, it's asymmetrical. It's view of God's salvation purpose, namely unconditional election to life, and, and I can't say it any simpler, conditional election to damnation. They deserve it. They've chosen it. That's what they get. When we speak about damnation, we mean that God predestines persons not to sin and disobedience, but the condemnation that issues from sin and that sin is so deserving of. Here's another reason why I don't believe in double predestination. Once you eliminate Romans 9 and handle it, we've handled it, or not eliminate it, dealt with it, understood it, there's only two other possible verses in the entire Bible that could even be understood to teach double predestination. We don't have the time to go through those two. We went through one of them in the book of Jude when we studied it. The weight of the evidence, it's just not there. It's just not there. So, I end with this. To stay on the tightrope of the text, we must not eliminate single predestination. Don't eliminate that. That goes too far on one direction, but also don't go to the extreme of double predestination. That's too far on the other side. You've got to walk the tightrope of the text. Now, I end with this. Why does God actively save some and passively pass over others? I've written those out. You can read that. Ultimately, it's a mystery. It's a mystery of his mercy. But even here in Romans 9, we see at least three reasons. Because doesn't that beg the question? The question we always come to is, why me and why not him? Why me and why not her? And I'm telling you, the answers are in God, much of which he has not revealed. The secret things belong to the Lord. The revealed things are what we are to focus on. And in Romans 9, he gives three simple reasons. They they, they won't answer all our questions, but they're all found in God. It's in order that his purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of his sovereign will, his sovereign calling. It's to proclaim the fame of his name. This is the awesome sovereign God. Listen, if you can't go through this study and not better understand what it means to fear the Lord, this is a fearful God. I can't package him. I can't control him. I can't just dust him off on Sundays and ignore him Monday through Saturday. This is a sovereign God who's working his purposes and his his amazing grace. He's chosen me in Christ, brought the gospel to me, gave me the faith and the humility to confess my sin and place my faith in Christ, and now has given me the grace to live for him imperfect though I am, and one day I'm going to be perfect. Now, that can be your destiny too. You say, how do I know if I'm elect? That's That's the wrong question. The right question is, what have I done with Christ? Because the elect accept Christ. Have you accepted Christ this morning? 
Have you embraced the gospel? Has the Holy Spirit indwelt you? Are you a new creature in Christ? If so, then you are one of God's elect, and it's because of His grace, not because of anything you did or did. And if you are still in your sin, and you are still without Christ, there is still hope, and all you have to do is cry out to Him. In Romans 10, we're going to see, we're going to see, Romans 10, what saving faith is all about. I'm glad this lesson. But I'm glad God has given a revelation. of. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I ask that you would save all who are here who do not know you. I pray you would draw them to your son, your son that you gave as a sacrifice for our sin who rose from the dead, who has done what we cannot do. He has lived a perfect life. He has met your righteous standards. And now he offers himself as a Savior and Lord to all who will call out to him. I pray no one will leave here without a shred of doubt that they have accepted you. And I pray that you would still be long-suffering with those who are resisting you, that you would withhold your wrath, withhold your hardening, from those who are resisting you, that, Lord, you would still draw them to gospel. We praise your name, God. In Jesus' name we pray.